Good morning. And John chapter 17 is where you can be turning. We pick up this morning in verse 6 as we continue to listen to what it sounds like when our Savior prays for us. I wonder if you've thought at all this past week about just what a marvelous thing that is that we were allowed to hear as he voiced and spoke to the heavens and interceded on our behalf. This is quite an honor what we're doing. Uh, We started last week looking at the first five verses and establishing that the petition that we see in verse 1 really sets up the context for the entire chapter. One man put it this way. He said, the first petition gathers up the whole prayer. The rest is commentary. And that is the petition that he issues to the Father when he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And we started to see in those verses that God's eternal plan has had as its apex the coming of the second person of the Trinity. God uh, coming, taking on flesh for the purpose of glorifying the Godhead. And as he does this, God brings eternal life to all of those sheep, as he will put it elsewhere, who hear his voice. All of his sheep are those that Jesus came to bear witness to the truth, bear witness to the person of, of, uh, um, of God. And he does this by, uh, by, uh, by saving us. And he saves us by imparting this knowledge to us. He says in verse 3, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And we'll start this morning looking into verse 6. We're going to be uh, studying together verses 6 through 19. And as we do this, depending on the view that you may have come in this morning with, about uh, Jesus and his mission, you may be surprised at some of the things that you find him to say here. That's always a possibility for us, right? As the word of God confronts us in our thinking, it's always possible that we may be surprised at something that we find there. Uh, We're going to find in these verses a Savior who came to earth with a consciously specific mission in mind. We're going to find a Savior who employed guaranteed methods to accomplish his mission. And therefore, we're going to find a Savior on a mission with guaranteed success. He could not fail. And what he came to do, he, in fact, did not fail. Uh, We started last week by reading the entire chapter together. This morning, we're just going to read verses 6 through 19 specifically. If you are able, would you please stand with me? For the reading of God's word. And Jesus' prayer continues this way. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. 
All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Excuse me. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And please be seated. And Father, we come before you now together as we begin to look into your word and we ask you to speak to us from your word. Lord, work in us through your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to its truth, to its beauty, to our need for it. Lord, we find that we are utterly dependent upon you and that is uh, clear to us. The longer we walk with you, how much we need you, how much you have, in fact, satisfied for us. And as we come to your word, we always want to remember the extent to which we need you. Lord, help us to hear you. Help us to see your son clearly in this passage and let that sight transform us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, Jesus made very clear to us uh, that in accordance with the eternal plan of Godhead, he was coming. And in accordance with God's eternal plan, he desired to be glorified in order to glorify the Father. He was glorified by receiving eternal life, uh, excuse me, receiving authority to grant eternal life. And he had glorified his Father by doing that, by doing so to all whom the Father had given him as he Puts it in verse 2. Verse 3 told us the way he had done that. He had done this by revealing God to us, which is what eternal life consists in. Now as this prayer continues, Jesus' words are going to shift a little bit here, starting in verse 6, and they're going to be far more of a description than of a petition compared to the first five verses. Last week we had two petitions inside of five verses. This week we have two petitions inside of 14 verses. Those are in verse 11 and verse 17, by the way. He will ask the Father here, Holy Father, keep them in your name. And then in verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. But there's far more description in these words as Jesus is is recounting his mission. And that's what we'll find that the description has to do with. He's speaking here about the redemptive mission for which he has come. You might almost think of this as a debriefing report from Jesus. 
we mentioned last week that he is speaking, he is praying this prayer in light of its, uh, the completion of all of his work. So we had last week in verse 4 a past tense, I glorified you on earth, even though his crucifixion was still to come, One of the, the high point of his, of his uh, glorifying God. In verse 11, he will say here, I am no longer in the world. Verse 24, he says, I desire that they may be with me where I am. Uh, Speaking about the right hand of the Father, he's not there yet. He's praying in light of the completion of all of this work he's come to do to glorify the Father. And so as he goes through this portion of the prayer, he is giving description about exactly what he has come to do and how he has done it. And there are three themes in particular that I want us to notice together this morning as we look in verses 6 through 19. The three elements of Jesus' redemptive mission that we are let in on here as we listen to him pray to the Father. And we'll go through them in this order. We're going to hear, number one, the specificity of Jesus' mission. Number two, the methodology of Jesus' mission. And third, we will hear the certainty of Jesus' mission. And you'll find the extent to which these things are tied together. And as I said at the beginning, I think this is an opportunity for us. We always are presented with this opportunity as we come to submit ourselves to the Word of God. Uh, We are being allowed to listen in here on our Savior as He speaks to His Father about their eternal plan of redemption. And so as we're listening to this, there are a couple of questions I think should be in our minds given what a wonderful opportunity this is to be confronted with the Word of God. So here's a couple of questions you might just be thinking about as we go through the text. Is this how I have understood Jesus' purpose when he came to earth? He is telling us his purpose. Is this how I have understood his purpose? And second... Does my own concept of Jesus allow him to say the things that he says here? We've all come into this room with a certain concept of Jesus, who he is, why he has come. Does my concept of Jesus allow him to say the things that he says in this passage? Now, what what do you think we do if the answer to that is no? We're always given a choice as we come to the Word of God. What is the authority? The way I have come to think or the words of Scripture? And so as we come and listen to Him, give description to His mission. Let's be faithful to ask the question, is He allowed to say that based on what I've come to think of who He is? And if the answer is no, then we have some changing that needs to happen, don't we? God's Word does not. We mentioned last week the famous quote by A.W. Tozer, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And if we said something true last week when we said that Jesus is God's self-revelation to us, well, then I'd always better be ready to allow his word to sharpen my thinking as I'm confronted with it. So let's begin by looking at the first of these three themes, the specificity of Jesus' mission. We began by noticing A repeated theme in the words that Jesus prays here to his Father. And this is the theme I want us to see of specificity. Starting in verse 6. He begins by repeating something he said before. That he did glorify the Father on earth by revealing him. He says in verse 6, I have manifested your name. 
as he moves on in the sentence that he is speaking, we have to let his context come to bear on what he has just said. And what we find is that he quickly gets pretty specific. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Do you hear him narrow his gaze here? He's not talking here about a general revealing of the person of God, the character of God. Now, it is true that he came and revealed in a general way to all of the world a manifestation of God. But what he's speaking about in verse 6 is something different, something more specific. He has manifested God's name to the people that were given to him. Verse 7, he says of them, Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And as he describes these people, it's clear that he's talking about, a, uh, about his disciples in this immediate context, uh, a people that have received eternal life. He says of them in verse 6, he says, They have kept your word. Look down at verse 7. He says of them, They know that everything that you have given me is from you. Verse 8, he says, they have received my words and have believed that you sent me. This is a specific group of people that he is referring to here as he speaks of his uh, work in manifesting God before them to see and respond to. And if it wasn't clear in those verses, it becomes very clear in verse 9. So we've seen the context of it. Look at verse 9 now. As he's just been describing them, in verse 9 he says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now we'll be talking more later about that prayer and the effectiveness of uh, a Savior when he prays for you. But at the moment, I want us to simply let this exclusion settle in. Jesus is speaking here in his intercessory role as our high priest. And he tells the Father, and he lets us hear him say it, that his prayer is not being given for all, but for that specific group of people that the Father has given him. Do you hear him say that? And he even explains why. He says at the end of that verse, for they are yours. Remember, the Father had given the Son a people... And we learned last week that this was the stated mission in redemptive history of the Godhead, that the second person would come, be given a people, and then save that people, impart eternal life to them by revealing God to them. There is a people that the Father had given the Son, and Jesus was supposed to give eternal life to those people. Verse 2, he was supposed to manifest God's name to those people. Verse 6. And so Jesus is saying here in verse 9 that in praying according to the Father's will, he is praying only for those that the Father has given him. By the way, this is not the first time that he's spoken like this. You may turn back to uh, keep your finger here and go to John chapter 10 for just a moment and find verse 24. Jesus is in the midst of a group of people. He's teaching, and they are not receiving him. They're reacting to him skeptically. It's been said, and I, I agree with it. I feel it strongly that there's a, there is one big weakness when it comes to written text, and that is 
You can't get a tone of voice in written text. That's why text messages can get misunderstood. That's why we have to use emoticons and things to try to try to get uh, some tone in there, right? Because the written word doesn't have it. This is one place I almost think we can hear a tone in Jesus' words as we hear what he says in response to those that he's talking to. Starting in verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. Does that sound familiar? And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. There's so many ties between Jesus' prayer and this passage. But do you hear some of the things he's saying here? He explains their unbelief in this context, in these terms. You do not believe because you are not one of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And then verse 29. My Father, who has given my sheep to me, is greater than all. That's why my sheep will always hear my voice and are secure, because those are the sheep that my Father has given to me, and that matters because he's so strong that no one can take them out of his hand. That's why that matters. Coming back into our passage, verse 12 repeats the statement that Jesus' work applies to those which God had given him. And then in verse 14, he says, I have given them your word. And notice the distinction. The world has hated them because they are not of the world. We'll talk about that much more a bit later. And then look at verse 19. He says something here that we must take some time with. He says, And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now your Bible might say, instead of consecrate, sanctify. It's the the word. I sanctify myself. We talked a bit in Sunday school about sanctification. Pretty clear that Jesus is not saying that he is increasing in personal holiness on their behalf. Because Jesus is the perfect Holy One. He cannot increase in holiness. What he's speaking about is being set apart for them. He is consecrating himself for them. And what you need to understand is that this is explicitly atonement language. I cannot put it better than D.A. Carson put it. So let me read to you something that he said in this context. He says, if Jesus consecrates himself to perform the Father's will, he consecrates himself to the sacrifice of the cross a theme he registers elsewhere. See this slew of eight verses. The point is intimated in in this verse by the fact that Jesus sanctifies himself for them who pair auton. The language is evocative of atonement passages elsewhere. And it also is evocative of Old Testament passages where the sacrificial animal was consecrated or set apart for death. Indeed, of language where consecration becomes synonymous with the sacrificial death itself. In other words, when when Jesus speaks here of consecrating himself, he is referring to his cross work. 
that he is about to walk in. He's setting himself apart to be slaughtered, to be the atoning sacrifice. And he says he's doing it for their sake. For their sake. And this matters. This matters because, as he goes on to say in verse 19, that atonement actually results in something. He says, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, let your eye go back and forth between verse 17 and that statement in verse 19. Do you see the connection between the two? Let me read verse 17 again. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Verse 19. And for their sake I I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Sanctify them in the truth, Father. How will that come to pass? As a result of his atonement. As a product of his atonement. The atonement for our sins by the shedding of Jesus' blood provides the basis for our subsequent sanctification. In other words, this is so important. Jesus' atoning death actually accomplished something. Really. His atoning death did not accomplish a possibility hypothetically. When he poured out his blood on the cross, something happened in reality. Jesus came to this earth on a mission for a specific group of people. They are the people that God gave to him. And that's important because God sent Jesus for them and God does not fail in anything that he does. They are the people for whom Jesus died an atoning death. And that's important because Jesus' atonement actually accomplishes something really. It is not uncommon in the Christian world for there to be a conception of Jesus' atonement that says that when he died on the cross, he created a possibility. He did it in a way that was generic for everyone without distinction including countless who would in fact not be saved. And yet Christ specifically states here in verse 19 that he consecrated himself unto that atonement for their sake. This is the first theme of Jesus' mission that we can see as we look through verses 6 through 19. And let's just say again as we move on that if there's something about what he says here that uh, that does not match the conception of his mission that you had when you came in. This is exactly how the Word of God can serve us. Why else do we, do we sit under the Word of God if not to be, to be uh, challenged and to be uh, shown exactly what He has said so that we might test our own thoughts? Our job as men and women who tremble at the Word of God is to allow that sort of thing to happen, to allow the Bible to shape our thinking as it confronts us. The second theme that we can see as we work through these verses is the methodology of Jesus' mission. I'll repeat again what he has said his mission is in the first five verses, is to glorify the Father on earth, verse 2, verse 4, and to do that by imparting true knowledge of God, verse 3. Now, what do we learn in these verses, though, about the method behind that mission? How is it that this comes to pass? How How do we come to know God in Christ? And he says many things in these verses about the method that was employed by which he has revealed God to us. There are three in particular that we hear him speak about. 
here. The first is in verse 6. We've spoken about it already. The character of God is put on display for people to see as Jesus takes on flesh and walks the earth. He says, I have manifested your name. God's name embodies his character. So to reveal God's name is to make God's character known. And this is plain in the in the sight of the sinless one of God walking the earth. He always did the will of his Father. Temptation to sin never had anything inside of him that it could appeal to because he is perfectly holy. And in every situation he responded to, he was led through, he walked through, he always reflected the Uh, the character of God. We spent some time last week just reflecting on the passages in the New Testament that speak of Christ as the one in whom the fullness of God dwells bodily, the one who is the perfect manifestation of of the character of God. And so that's one way that he has accomplished this, just in his coming and living among us. He's put God on display in his character. The other two ways that he specifically speaks about this in these verses sound the same, but they're not the same. They're different. Verse 6, he says of his disciples, they have kept your word. And verse 8, he says, I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them. That sounds the same. It's not the same. It's not just a singular plural difference either. Those are completely different terms being used there referring to different things, connected things, but different things. The first one in verse 6, when he says that they have kept the Father's word, singular. This is the word logos. This is a word that, when it's speaking about a message, is referring to the whole message together. The message of God. It's, it's been by some, they want to, equival, uh, to uh, make this equivalent to the idea of gospel. The gospel of God. The message of of the plan of redemption realized in Christ. Jesus says here that his disciples have kept that message. Which is interesting to say about them when you think about where, where they are right now spiritually. End of chapter um, 16, he's just chastised them and their self-confidence and informed them that they were almost about to desert him. Uh, certainly would have been a very upsetting thing to hear your Savior say. Um, they're not perfected here. They, they don't even understand yet what's going on uh, in, any, in any sort of a full way, and they're about to be shaken. And yet Jesus says of them in verse 6, they have kept your word, the message of what you've sent me to do. And we learn some things from that, watching the disciples. Probably like me, you are very encouraged at the things we learn from that. Because what we see are disciples that had not displayed mature conformity to the details of Jesus' teaching. But what is he saying that they had done? When he says they've kept your word. Well, what they have done is they have committed themselves unreservedly to Jesus as the Messiah. As the one who truly reveals the Father. And that should be so encouraging to us. It gets to be said of them, that they have kept his word before they have displayed a mature, complete conformity to the details of his teaching. And that is the case for every one of us in here. What keeps us going, what keeps us pressing forward 
in our conformity to Christ and our pursuit of, of Christ's likeness and sanctification is not the news that we are perfect in our obedience. It's our realization by the Spirit of God and our conviction that the message of Jesus' gospel is true. Romans 4, God really is the one who justifies the ungodly. And so I can come to him with empty hands, not with hands of my, my uh, best efforts, because that's who he is, and he's shown that in sending his son. For my justification before God, I choose to rest, my work, to rest from my work and to trust entirely on Jesus' work. I don't understand it all yet. I'm not yet one who looks like him in every way. I continuously grow weak in faith and fail as a result, and yet I know that he is the Holy One of God that God has sent. It's just encouraging to hear of a group of men with as weak of faith as they have at the moment. They have kept your word. Now, before we go on to verse 8 and move away from the Logos word, I want, you need to notice that it, that word have, it comes up again in verse 17 when he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's the word Logos again. So we can be genuine keepers of the word, even in a state of immaturity and imperfection, but verse 17 adds something to that. What does that word received do? Does it do nothing? Is it just the anchor that we hold and nothing else? Or as verse 17 tells us, does that word received, held onto as an anchor, does it actually change us? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It will be at work sanctifying us. The Bible says that we become alive when we are connected to Christ. Uh, Ephesians 2.5, we are made alive together with Christ. Uh, John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So we just can't leave the idea of Logos as the message that they received imperfectly without stating what Jesus states, and that is that God is so good and his message is so powerful in and of itself that as I hold on to it as my hope, it works in me. It bears fruit in me. So Jesus glorifies God by putting his character on display, verse 6, by declaring the message of God's plan of reconciliation, verse 6. We can also see it when he, in verse 8, mentions that plural form of words. I have given them the words that you gave me. Now, this is a, this is a, the word, a form of the word rhema when it talks about words about a written word. It's not the whole message. It's the individual actual words themselves. The words themselves. I have given them the words that you gave me. That's quite a statement. When Jesus says, I only speak what my Father tells me to speak, he is, he is getting down to the level of, of the words themselves. In talking about the word rhema here, one uh, one source writes this. It speaks of neither Jesus' teaching as a whole nor his itemized precepts, but his actual words or utterances. These were given to Jesus by God. The Son only says what the Father gives him to say, and the disciples accepted these words. Now again, notice something that's similar to what we said about verse 6. They may not have always understood them, 
But so attached had they become to Jesus that they accepted his words as true revelation from God. I don't know that there is a better place where we see that on display than in John chapter 6, verses 66 and 68. Jesus has just spoken some very hard words so that much of that crowd has gone, oh, okay, that's, that's it, All right, I'm, I'm gonna, and have left him. You may remember that. And he turns to his disciples and he says, will you leave too? And there's something that Peter answers, something not there in what he says, but I think it's clear given the implication of what he's saying. Um, Peter does not respond for the disciples and say, no, we're fine. We understand you completely. Those guys just, they just don't get it. Well, we know what you're talking about. We're with you. That's not what he says in verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words, that's the rhema word, you have the words of eternal life. To whom shall we go? I don't understand what you just said about eating your flesh. But I know one thing. You have, your words are the words of eternal life. So where else are we going to go? And in fact, as he continues in verse 69, he even brings the other, the, the word, the logos concept in. Listen to what he says about Jesus in verse 69. I'll read his response again in its, in, in its totality. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They don't get it yet. They're about to pretend they don't know the man. So weak will they still be capable of becoming. And yet one thing is clear in their minds. If God has a plan to save sinners, this man is it. And because that's true, every word that comes out of his mouth. Our words of eternal life. Every word. So what do we see in far of, uh, insofar as we hear Jesus describe his methodology in accomplishing his mission? Well, we see that he accomplishes the mission of showing God to us, giving us knowledge of God by manifesting God's character as he lives, by revealing the message of God's redemptive plan of grace, and by instructing us with the very words of God. And as he works in this way, In the lives of his people, he is exerting his God-given authority to grant eternal life. Verse 2. Because eternal life is knowing the only true God. And not just knowing facts about him, but knowing him. Knowing him intimately. Having an intimacy with his ways, with his character as he really is. And that requires a knowledge that only Jesus is able to bring us. The third theme that we see working through uh, these verses is the certainty of his message of his mission. Certainty. The wording of Jesus' prayer uh, informs us in those first two ways: the specificity, the methodology. But the third sense that we get, and I think we'll see it uh, very plainly in a couple of things that he says in particular. Notice the way he speaks about what he is doing and how certain its outcome seems to be. Look back at verse six again. Jesus describes. A transaction. He's just spoken about this in the first five verses. You remember the transaction? God has given him a people, 
Well, the first is God has given him authority, and he has used that authority to save a people. Over and over, he speaks in terms of this planned transaction on the part of God. And he speaks in those terms in verse 6. The Father gave the Son disciples out of the world. It says these people were his. They belonged to the Father even before Christ came in a sense. And in sending his Son to the world, he gave them to his Son. Verse 6. To the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. I want you to see the effect of this gift Down in verse 14. Find verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. When I think of those two verses together, it's just something. It speaks to the the inevitable success of the plan of God. When God gives Jesus someone from out of the world, you know what happens to them? They stop being of the world. They are not of the world, Jesus says. God gave Christ a people from out of the world, and Jesus worked. And their entire identity has changed. Their citizenship is different. There is a transfer of allegiance. And this is a result of the decree of God as he gives a people to his son. And it's realized in space and time as they are given God's word, verse 14. They receive it, verse 6. And we see that Jesus' mission isn't just that they would be given to him, but that they would be kept, that they would be protected. And how does Jesus make that protection, preservation of his people, a certainty? Come back to verse 9. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. We've already talked about the exclusion there, but I want us to think now about the reason for an exclusion. Why would he limit his prayer here to a select group of people? Why doesn't he just pray this for everyone? And because this is how it works, I pray for everyone, and then, you know, because we'll just kind of see what happens with it. As many people as this affects, the better, and that would be the more that can be affected by my prayer, I'll be pleased with. Is that the way that, is that what happens when Jesus prays? Jesus, who always prays perfectly in accordance with the will of God? Why does he feel the need to limit his prayer here? He limits his prayer because the prayer of Jesus is effective. It accomplishes. We've established already the specificity of his mission. He came on a mission for a select group of people, those that God has given him, verse 2, verse 6, verse 11. And so lest Jesus be found to be praying against the Father's purposes, he specifies here that he is praying for those that God has given him. And that matters because his prayer itself is efficacious. Do look with me here. I think this is the last place I'll have you turn to. Look at Luke chapter 22 and find verses 31 and 32. Luke 22, 31 may be a well-known passage to you. 
Interestingly, just like the end of chapter 16, this is stated right after an assertion of confidence on the part of one of his disciples. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. There are some details we should point out here. Uh, when, he, when Jesus says, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you, that's a plural you. Satan's demand was for all of the disciples to sift them, not just Peter. And it is historically understood for several reasons, grammatical reasons, the way that Jesus' statement is, is put out there, that he's telling Peter that Satan's request has been granted. He is going to sift them like wheat. And when Jesus prays in verse 32, here's where something shifts. When he says, but I have prayed for you, he's not, talking, he's not using a plural you there. He's using a singular you. Satan, Peter, Satan has desired you all to wreck you all. But take heart. Isn't it clear? His, his next statement is an attempt to encourage Peter. I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Jesus' plan is to preserve all of his disciples, not just Peter, except for Judas. He reports in his, um, in his debriefing in John 17 that he has accomplished that. Not one of them was lost except the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. All of his disciples, except for Judas, are going to be preserved. But Simon is spoken of in a way that sets him apart from the rest here. The disciples will be sifted like wheat, but they will be preserved. And how? Well, for Peter, here's how they will be preserved. This is the way that it, Jesus is putting it. Simon will be preserved because Jesus has prayed for him. Jesus has interceded with a prayer for him. And so he is safe. The rest of the disciples will be protected as well. How? Well, Jesus has prayed for Peter that Peter's faith would not fail. And then Jesus has sent Peter to strengthen his brothers. And so they are protected. But you need to see there that Jesus is claiming something about his prayer. Otherwise, his statement to Simon, Peter, does not serve as any sort of encouragement. Jesus is claiming that his prayer is sufficient assurance for Peter that Peter's faith will not fail. Don't worry, Peter, because I've prayed for you. And we can take something from that back into John 17. For Jesus to intercede for you in prayer is for Jesus to secure you. He only prays according to the Father's will. And therefore, all of his prayers are granted to him. And thus, Jesus' mission is seen here to be certain in its success. Because, number one, the Father gave a people to his Son, which changes their very citizenship. And number two, Jesus has prayed for them which in itself secures them forever. And if you don't take personal encouragement from that, since he's speaking immediately here about the disciples, what you need to do is go back to verse 20 and notice that he doesn't just pray for his disciples. He has prayed for you. You who have come to put your hope and faith on the Lord Jesus Christ as the Redeemer from God, the one sent to live the perfect life in your place, 
the fulfillment of the eternal plan of God to put himself on display by rescuing a people for himself. You who have put your hope in him, you are secure. Why? Because Jesus has prayed for you in verse 20. I wonder if you sense how hopeless your situation truly was before you came to know the Lord. Does Jesus' prayer give you a deeper understanding of how helpless your estate would be and that your only hope is that God freely chose to call you to himself to give life to your soul? What else matters? What else in your life would have mattered if not for that kind act of God on your behalf. We've said a few times now, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Well, I wonder, how are you doing when it comes to finding your identity in the relationship that was bought for you by your Savior? The work that He has done in your heart, in your mind, in your being, so that you actually have affection for Christ. That about you is the most important thing about you. Are you finding your identity, your place of essential worth and value in the things that you do, and how skilled you are, in the state of your marriage, and how your kids have turned out, and what level of happiness you've been able to achieve for yourself and yours, and the level of success you've been able to find, most all of which, by the way, are good and important things. But I wonder if we've been able to push past that and to truly rest in the reality that what fundamentally matters most about you, what fundamentally identifies you, is seen in what God has done in revealing himself to you. I just wonder how many deep and real problems in this room right now might actually find their rest in that one reality. And finally, as we move to closing, do you take comfort in hearing Jesus speak of his disciples so confidently, as imperfect and slow of mind as they were at that point? I want us to close by remembering the two fundamental reasons that Jesus gives here for their safety. They have become convinced that I truly have come from the Father and have the words of eternal life. And I am praying for the Father to guard them. We are all works in progress here, aren't we? Every single one of us in this room. If we're truly connected to the life-giving vine, we are alive, we are growing Grace is training you, Titus 2.12, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. But aren't those truths about Jesus' disciples exactly what we boil down to in the end? We can never escape the reality, again, that Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. And has he not by now made clear to you that at the end of the day, it's not that you are holding on to him, it's that he is holding on to you. He is pleased as we see those things and thank him for them.
Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this prayer of our Lord. And we marvel at him. We marvel at his perfections. That he, as true man and true God, could walk the earth and be tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. We marvel at him as he perfectly, consistently reflects your character. We marvel at him as he prays with such effectiveness and power that his prayers accomplish. And Lord, we marvel at you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God. We marvel at you as we see the eternal plan that you have wrought to glorify yourself. And we thank you that your plan for self-glory, because you are the loving God that you are, your plan for self-glory entails the eternal blessedness of a people. We are unworthy of it. And we will forever be thankful to you for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me for our benediction this morning. From Ephesians chapter 6, verses 23 and 24. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. Amen. You're dismissed.